Oh God, thank you that you are trustworthy. We pray that our our conception of who you are and the love that you have for us would expand in the way that we need it to in order to stand. To stand in faith of the God of love who gave himself for us. Lord God, we pray that we would see your love more deeply and that it would transform our hearts more completely. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I don't know what time your mornings start, but my mornings can start pretty early. So I wake up in the morning depending on when I hear uh, either da-da or some crying. And then I, I rush to my daughter's room and I try to get them rocking to where they'll be able to sleep maybe just a little bit longer. And I'll rock them as long as I can. And then comes the moment when they wake up, we go downstairs, we have worship together, and then Dad always does breakfast. I've told Leah, you know, you work so hard all day long. Taking care of twins is no joke, I'm telling you. I mean, I admire what all moms do, but twin moms, that's just, I mean, I should feel that way about my wife, shouldn't I? Well, anyway, so in the morning, I figured out a really simple way to do breakfast. I take two bowls out, one for me, one for the girls. I put oats in them. I put water in them. I put them in the microwave for three and a half minutes. It comes out as oats just right for us to eat. So we sit down together and we're having our breakfast and I'm dishing out their oatmeal and I'm eating my oatmeal. When all of a sudden, the last few weeks, Olivia's been looking over at me and she's like, Dada oats. Dada oats. She wants my oats. And, and there's a reason that I'm not giving her my oats. You see, she has these special oats from Costco, Coach's oats. They're, they're organic. They're special oats for my girls to eat. I'm eating Quaker oats. They're not organic. They, 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 they could have some stuff in them that's not so good for my little girls. What do I do? You see, Olivia, if I tell her, no, you can't have this, does she understand she thinks that, that I'm withholding something from her. She thinks that, that I have something special that, that I don't want to give to her. And so often in my life, I felt that way about God. How about you? Have you ever thought, well, God is just, you know, why does he limit me from this? Why does he keep this back from me? Is he holding back on me? Does he really have my good in mind? Does God have our good in mind? This is the crucial question that you and I have to face. In fact, when we look at Revelation, it's an essential question for us to understand the entire book of Revelation. We've been looking at some beautiful things in Revelation. We've looked at Revelation chapter 4 and 5 where we saw that Jesus is the only one who's worthy. We've looked at how he opens the seals in Revelation chapter 6 and it explains to us all the, the chaos and things that are going on on this planet. But, but by the time you get to Revelation chapter 12, you've come to the central point of the book of Revelation. And they've, scholars look at, at Revelation and they, they see that Revelation 12 to 14 is what is the central part of the book of Revelation. It's like a chiastic structure, which is like a mountain going up. And at the very top is Revelation 12 to 14. And you're like looking down on the rest of Revelation. The rest of it really unfolds and is explained as you come to grasp the concepts in Revelation chapter 12 to 14. So look with me at Revelation chapter 12. And and here we get one of the most crucial understandings that we as human beings can come to. Revelation chapter 12. And we pick up the story in verse, I believe it's 7. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Isn't that strange? War broke out in heaven. 
what? Heaven? That's the last place that you would expect war to break out. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. How, how did this, what did this look like? What does an angel battle look like? You have Michael and his angels. Michael means one who is, uh, who is like God. It's, it's his question, really. Then you have Satan, the adversary, the, the dragon, the, the one who is, who is the accuser of the brother, and he's fighting with his angels against this beautiful and powerful uh, uh, figure. So what does is, what is a war look like in heaven? Do they have lightsabers? Do they they able to have lightning bolts come out of their wrists? I mean, what does it look like for angels to fight? Well, the word here is polemos, which can be used for a full-on battle, but it also can be used for something that we get words from today, like polemic. Have you ever heard of polemic? It's a an argument against somebody that is very aggressive, right? And it's, a, it's, a, it's an argument of words. It's really where we get our word politics from, all the, the craziness in the world today, right? It's, so you have a, a presidential election going on, and as, as you have two candidates going back and forth, as they're, they're battling by, do they ever get out their swords and their guns and be like, okay, let's just challenge this to a duel and we'll settle it this way. No, they're using words to tear each other down, to figure out how to... to to build up the confidence in their ability to lead. And this is what you find is going on in heaven. There's a question of of who is the one that's worthy to lead? Who is the one? Is this the right system of government? Or should we be looking for a different type of government? And there was no place found for them any longer in heaven, the dragon and his angels. Verse 9 then goes on to say this. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So this is a crazy picture. Why in the world could a being in heaven begin to war against God? Well, go with me to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 is one of the few places where we get a picture of what takes place. The other one would be Ezekiel chapter 28. In Ezekiel chapter 28, it tells us how this being was the seal of perfection. And that God himself had set him right by his throne. He walked among the the stones of fire. He was one of the covering cherubs. This being and his name at this point was Lucifer, meaning light bearer. He was, he was a musician. God said, I gave you from the moment you were created, I gave you timbrels and I gave you the ability to be this beautiful musician. Well, in Isaiah chapter 14, it tells us what began to happen in his heart. And it tells us in the midst of a prophecy about or a, 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 a talking about the king of Babylon. And in the midst of that, it suddenly jumps to this figure who really the king of Babylon was acting like. Verse 12, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. So this is being saying, I am going to have the entire congregation following in my system of government. I am going to exalt myself. I'm going to show that I have the best way of leading. 
And he's using polemics to do it. Right? He's using warfare. He's, he's going around planting seeds about what the best possible way to... And notice specifically what he goes on to say. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Do you notice what he's saying? Right? So what is he saying that, that he wants to do? Where does he want to go? Up. He says... I'm going to take a higher position. I have the answers. I could do things better. I, and he's building himself up. And then he says, I will be like the Most High. You see what he's saying? He's saying the Most High has exalted himself. The Most High has built himself up. The Most High is self-centered, self-focused. He's holding things back from us. He holds what's best for him away from us. And I know that not just because of this verse, but look at what takes place. We read in Revelation chapter 12 that this dragon goes and he's cast down to the earth. There's no longer a place found for him in heaven. And as he goes down to earth, he deceives the whole world. So go to Genesis chapter 3 with me. You have this beautiful and good creation that God has created. And he looks at it and he says, this is is really good. Everything. Everything. It's, it's beautiful. It's good. There's no death here. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's none of the chaos on this planet. And then Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now remember when it said the dragon? What were some of the other words that it called him? That old serpent of old. The devil and Satan. So devil is kind of like a Greek way of saying Satan, which means adversary. The one who's, who's just trying to tear other people down around him. So Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God say that? Well, in, in creation he had said, Here are all of the trees on this planet. Every tree is good for you to eat. Go fill the earth, subdue it. And oh, by the way, I'm going to place one tree right here in the middle. And I don't want you to come and eat from this tree. And I need you to trust me. Will you trust me that I'm not holding something good back from you? That was the simple, simple arrangement. But Lucifer comes in and he's like Satan at this point, And he says, look, God told you that you can't eat of every tree. Is that really what God has told you? And we have to be very concerned about religion when it is focused on what you cannot do. Shared a message with Mark on that just recently. The pastor friend of ours was saying, you've got to watch out when a religion is all focused on the negatives, on what you cannot do. Because James goes on to call the law of God in James the law of liberty. It's there to set you free. God does not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly, Psalms 84 tells us. He is a giver of good gifts. He wants what's best for you. And you see what Satan's trying to do? He's trying to plant this doubt in, in minds. And he tries to plant that doubt in your mind and my mind. You know, cheating on your taxes, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And maybe there's this reason and that reason, and this is actually going to help you out. And, you know, maybe treating this person maybe the answer really is to tear them down, to hurt them, and maybe this will, will take care of things. Or, or maybe 
tithing, that's not that big of a deal, really. I mean, you need that money right now. Or, or maybe it has to do with the Sabbath. Like, well, what's the big deal with worshiping Jesus on the Sabbath? What? God is holding something back from you. That's the idea that, that the serpent tried to plant in Eve's mind, and she comes back with saying, well, no, 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 no. He didn't say we couldn't eat of all the trees, but he, he did say we couldn't eat of this one tree. And, and he said, if we do, we'll die. And so the serpent responds in, chap- in verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You, you see, sin is actually something that, that isn't going to harm you in the end. You see the picture that he wants to paint. God is lying to you. Maybe he'll hurt you, but sin's not going to hurt you. Then verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It says, God's holding something back from you. There's a bigger, more glorious experience out there. You don't have to listen to what God's saying. Just try it. Just doubt who God is. Doubt that he has your best in mind. Doubt that he really loves you enough to give you instructions that will make your life better. Doubt that the Bible is of any value to your life. Doubt that he really, truly loves you. Sadly, she looks at it and she says, oh, that tree is desirable. It it would make me wise. And she takes it, she eats it, she gives it to her husband and they eat it. And verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Psalm chapter 104 says that God clothes himself in light. And, and I think this is a picture of the innocence, the purity of God. And we talked about in Revelation chapter 6 when the question is asked, who is going to be able to stand? And they're running and they're crying to the rocks and the mountains and the hills to fall on them and to hide them from their God of love who's coming back to them because they recognize in his purity the absolute shame and guilt that they have refused to let him take care of in their hearts. So where is the problem in this situation? Is the problem with God? The problem is in the human heart. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says that your sins have separated you from God. They have hidden his face from you. You you can't really see who God is. You don't recognize what God is really like. And because you don't recognize what he's like, it separates you from him. You don't want what God wants anymore. You run the opposite direction. And so we see verse 8. And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I mean, how ridiculous is this? They run off and they're hiding behind a tree, right? And God comes walking to the garden, their creator, the one who made that tree, the one who made the garden, and they're hiding behind this tree. And God's like, uh, hey, Adam, where are you? <laughs> where, where are you at, Adam? Well, I, I heard you walking in the garden, and I was afraid. Well, why was Adam afraid of God? He often came walking in the garden. And was God coming to hurt Adam? Was God coming to punish him? Was he coming to heap guilt on him? Was he coming to condemn him? Was he coming? That's the exact opposite of what you find that God is coming to do. God knows what they have done and he is coming to give them a promise that he's going to take care of that situation by sacrificing himself. That's who God is. 
But God wants to keep you, uh, Satan wants you to stay away from God. He wants you to feel like you're too bad to get near to God. He wants you to think that I, I can't turn to God. Repentance is not just turning away from sin, but it's turning to a person, Jesus. And as you turn to that person, you recognize a good God who wants what's best for you. But if you think he's out to condemn you, then you're in a lot of trouble. But John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And you find that this is exactly what takes place. Verse 11, God responds and he said, who told you that you were naked? You see, the, the problem came in the deception. It came in what the serpent had planted in their minds. It came in what sin does to the heart. There's no change in God. The change comes in the individual. And that's why sin is so dangerous. Then he goes on to say, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then we begin to see the reality. Satan tries to tell us, hey, you don't need this law of love in order for your life to be better. He says, if you just forget that and go your own way and look out for number one. I mean, in this world, with as crazy it is, it is, how are you going to make it through these tough times unless you look out for number one? That's what a lot of people will tell you. You know, you got to watch out for yourself. You got to make sure people don't step on you. You got to make sure things are going okay for you. Well, here they are trying to exalt themselves, and suddenly they find themselves more and more alone. What, what takes place? Adam's like, well, well, Eve, that one that he'd just fallen in love with, and he really, Eve's the one who did it. She brought it to me. And Eve's like, well, well, well the serpent. And suddenly you see alienation. You see a lack of love. And in our lives and in our relationships, when we see that taking place, we can count on it that there's selfishness getting involved. We can count on it that there is an enemy who's coming in and trying to create that in our lives. And what we really need is to return to Jesus and to allow him to do what he's promised in Genesis chapter 3 and also in Revelation chapter 12. Then God responds, He's, he ignores the accusing, he ignores all that's going on, and he says this in verse 15, and I will put enmity, talking to the serpent, now they're friends, right? They, he's convinced them, and he's become what is later called the God of this world. He's become the ruler of this age, Second Corinthians chapter 4 tells us. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. You know, you might feel like, well, but religion does ask a lot of things of me. And there, there are these things that God says are important in my life. And honestly, I just don't want them. Well, the reality is that you can't change your heart. What you need is a God who will put enmity between you and that stuff. And he does that by placing love for him in your heart. And as that relationship develops, you begin to hate the enemy. You begin to hate sin. You begin to want nothing to do with it anymore. Then he says, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We'll come back to that in a minute. But this picture is exactly what takes place in Revelation chapter 14. Because in Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12, you have a picture of what God wants to do in placing enmity between his people and between sin. After their 
put out of the, as they're being put out of the garden, God takes and he puts clothes of skin around them. And those clothes represented Jesus and his righteousness, his righteous actions. Jesus who alone is worthy, that that would become a part of their life to such an extent that it's like wearing that clothing. Well, Revelation chapter 12, we started in verse 7 because that's where it goes back the furthest in time. Revelation often loops around itself and comes back. But go back to verse 1. Says this now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Do you see what the picture is here? What Israel, what the church of God has been hoping for throughout history is finally going to come to fruition. They've been longing for the seed. The one who will put enmity, who will fix the problem, who will take us back to the Garden of Eden, which was pleasure, will, will, will renew this perfect creation. And they're longing for that. And she's crying out in labor to give birth. But notice what she's pictured like. Did you see that? She's clothed with the sun. What does the, the sun represent in, in the Bible? If you go... Well, I mean, sun worship is a really bad thing. You see that? So maybe, does it mean she's worshiping the sun? No. If you look in Malachi chapter 4, it says that the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. It's a prophecy about Jesus, that Jesus will come in such a way to bring healing and restoration on this planet. And we need that righteousness to clothe our lives. The, the moon under, under the feet, I, I like to picture that as... Clearly, the language here is language of light. In creation, it's the sun, moon, and stars that are, are created to give light and seasons and signs. But the moon just reflects the light of the sun. And so, the Bible says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. She's wrapped in the worthiness of Jesus, trusting and connecting with Jesus, having that close relationship with Jesus. And she's standing firmly on that lamp that light of the word of God. And that is the foundation in her life. And she's got this crown of victory with the 12 stars that Daniel uh, goes on to tell us in Daniel chapter 12 that those who lead the many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. This is a picture of Christianity having success. This is a picture of God's people shining in all of the righteousness of Christ that is the absolute essential thing to recognize in the end, Christ's righteousness is how people stand in the end. There is no other way in which you will see yourself through the end of time except for to trust that Jesus is everything and you have nothing. If you're trusting in anything else, it's going to let you down. It comes down to trusting wholeheartedly in Jesus. And that involves trusting in what he's instructed us, trusting what he's given us, that, that his love is so good that he would withhold nothing from us, that he only wants what's best for us. And as this, this woman is about to, to bear a child, this suddenly you see in verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems to his he heads. This, this fearsome beast shows up. Did, the most fearsome beast in the Bible is reserved to, to give us an idea of how intense the conflict is between Satan and us, between Satan and Jesus. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. A tail in Isaiah chapter 9 represents deception. Prophets that prophesy falsehood are, are called the tail. 
His tail draws a third of the stars in Revelation. Stars often refer to, not always, but sometimes refer to angels. And because of what it says later about him having angels with him, it, it appears that you have this being of awesome light and glory that, that's deceiving all of these people, and he draws a third with him. Now, I just want to ask you a question that I've been thinking about recently, and I've asked some of you this already, but if you are going to create, you're the creator of the universe, and you know the future, you know what's going to happen, you know who this being is that you are going to create. His name is Lucifer. And you decide, well, where should I create him? And what should he look like? And what part should he play in my kingdom? Where would you put the being that you know eventually will betray you and you know eventually will, will create this great controversy? Where would you place him? Where would you create him? What would you make him look like? I asked this in first service and one person answered, well, I put him on the farthest island, the farthest distance away. I would make sure that he wasn't too much of a threat. I mean, because if he doesn't have a lot of power, a lot of influence, then we could be like, well, yeah, that's nice that he said that, but here's the deal. You know who I am. Don't pay attention to what Lucifer's saying. But what does God do? He pulls him as close as possible. He makes him as beautiful as possible. He makes him the the seal of perfection. He says, he's going to be my enemy one day. But I'm going to give him every possible reason not to become my enemy. I'm going to pull him as close as possible. I'm going to put him right in my very presence, the most exalted creature, because that's the the best I can do for him. I'm going to bring him as close so he can see all of my glory, all of my love. Is that an amazing God or what? And this being begins to plant the seed saying, well, God is holding something back from us. And he has this influence that draws others with him because he's, he says, you know, God, his government is not fair. It's not just in that he, res- he restricts our freedom and he's holding something back from us. When in reality, the only thing God holds back from us are the things that hurt us, the things that, that will eventually kill us. But thankfully, Revelation 12 goes on to say that this dragon, as, she, as the dragon attempts to to, to consume this little baby that's being born. It goes on to say, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. The seed won the victory. But here's the question. What did God prophesy about the seed? He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. What did that look like? Look at Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians, Paul uh, is telling us how we should treat each other, that we should treat each other with with humility. And, And here you have a picture of this awesome, powerful, omnipotent Christ who is seated on the throne of the universe. And in Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He wasn't fighting for position. He wasn't trying to build himself up. He wasn't trying to make himself greater. But instead, what did he he do? But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. That alone is an infinite, sacrifice. I mean, you think about an infinite, omnipotent, beautiful, powerful God 
becoming a part of his creation, that's worse than me looking down at the cockroaches and saying, ah, these cockroaches, they've got a lot of problems. Or maybe looking, looking at, at the earwigs up at the farm. Man, these earwigs, I've got to convince them not to help the farm, but I don't really want to become an earwig. Okay, the sacrifice of me becoming an earwig for the rest of eternity is nothing. It, it, would, it doesn't even compare to the sacrifice of the omnipotent creator stepping into creation, still fully God, and yet taking on human flesh. And Hebrews chapter 2 says, that he took on this human flesh so that through death he might destroy the power, the one who has the power of death. So taking on the form of a man, it goes on to say, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He just kept going down. You see, the Bible's picture is that the way up is down. You want to exalt yourself in life? Then Jesus said, serve. His disciples were constantly worried about who's the best. And he said, well, serve. And they didn't get it all the way until the upper room when they're there around the table. They're crowding in around him, seeing who can be right next to him. And he has Judas right there beside him, the one that he knew would betray him. And he goes and he washes Judas's feet first. And he washes all his disciples' feet because he only wanted what was best for them. And he wanted for them to know that self-sacrificing love is the only way. The way up that Lucifer pursued is the way down. And friends, if you haven't noticed it, we are in the midst of a world that is telling us that we need to tear other people down and build ourselves up. We're hearing some crazy polemics right now on every side in this world and and there is so much hatred going around and God wants for you to have nothing to do with it. Nothing. Do you hear me? He wants for you to have his kingdom in mind. He wants for you to have enmity for the enemy's kingdom. He wants for you to know a God of love who laid down his life for you. And it can be, you can wonder, do, do I really want to trust a God like that? Is, is he really trustworthy? I remember back in elementary school, I was, uh, I had two, there were two guys. There was Jonathan and Raymond. They were big guys. I was in second grade, I think it was. And they liked to fight on the playground. They would always fight over different uh, games that we were playing because they really wanted to win. And so they would fight about who's on their team or they'd fight about this and that. And I remember one day we're there and they begin to fight, and it's the three of us, and I'm standing right in the middle of it. I was a part of whatever action was that led finally to them beginning to fight, and so they're beginning to push each other, and then they come over to me as this little second grader. I wasn't that little, really, but they push me, and I just flopped on the ground. I, I can't even tell you exactly why I did that at this point in time, but I just, I didn't want to fight. I didn't want to be a part of this battle, and I flopped on the ground. Well, Our teacher didn't see that. And so she came to get this fight and she brought us into the principal's office and when she brought us there, I thought I was going to be in trouble along with them. Here's this fight and I'm going to be a part of it. I'm going to be in trouble. But you know what? There was the principal's wife. Their house was just a little ways away. It was just past the playground and she had been happening to walk towards the elementary school right at that time. She came into the office and I remember her saying, wait a second. Zachary, he wasn't fighting. He just flopped on the ground. Let him go. (laughs) He's not guilty. 
Friends, the way down is up. This is what we finally see taking place in Philippians chapter 2 as it goes on to say, verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him. That's Jesus. He's that child who was born and who was taken up to the throne. He is worthy. God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That character is undeniable, the character that he has. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Satan dug this pit, and and he attempted to do everything possible in digging this pit to get the Son of Man to fall into it. He said, I'm going to get Jesus. I'm going to get him. I'm going to send him to the grave. But you know what Proverbs 26, 27 says? He who digs a pit will fall into it. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, I believe it's verse 10, says that the one who digs a pit will fall into it. He who breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. In the end, if we choose the way of Satan, it's going to come back to get us. Just like it's come back to Satan. Satan has forever lost the allegiance of of the universe. If you look in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 says it, so uh, appropriately, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 says it this way. Talking about the cross, it says, having disarmed principalities and powers, that's, that's the whole heavenly powerful universe, 10,000s and 10,000s, uh, but specifically those who are opposed to God, right? We don't know exactly how many that is. He disarmed principalities and powers and he made a public spectacle of them, tri- triumphing over them in it being the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus went all the way to the cross in every step of the way. As they were, you have the the passers-by are going past the cross and they're saying, if you're really who you say you are, save yourself. And then it gets a little bit closer in Matthew's gospel and it tells us that then the priests and the, the, the scribes and they're all near the cross and they're saying, if you're really, then save yourself. And then it gets even closer and it says, even both robbers... That if you're really who you say you are, then save yourself. But Jesus said, no, I will not save myself. I am not seeking self-exaltation. I'm not worried about me. I am not number one. They are. These people, they are number one. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Bruce Shelley, in his book, talking about uh, Christian history, he says it, it this way. It's church history in plain language. He said, Christianity is the only major religion to have at its central event the humiliation of its God. All, all these world religions, they, they have their God exalting themselves, demanding things of people, but, but there's one religion that has at the center the humiliation of its God. You know, the cross is a strange throne. But how appropriate that it said, here is the king of the Jews. And it says, we are crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in us that the world will be transformed. In Desire of Ages, page 22, it says this, the earth was darkened through misapprehension of God, that the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God. Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. This could not be done by force. 
God had the power that as easy as he could cast a pebble into a lake, he could have demolished Satan. He, he bore with him for so long in heaven before he finally cast him out of heaven and then he allows him to continue to rebel because force is not the answer. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. Do you believe that? <laughs> he said, turn the other cheek, pray for your enemy. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. His character must be manifested in contrast to the character of Satan. This work only one being in all the universe could do. Only he who knew the height and depth of the love of God could make it known. Upon the world's dark night, the sun of righteousness must rise with healing in his wings. Friends, we are called to be clothed with the Son of Righteousness, to be immersed in who Jesus is, to recognize that this, if you've seen Jesus, then you've seen the Father. He came healing and doing good, watching out for the lepers, watching out for the Gentiles, watching out and pursuing the Pharisees who were trying to kill him and doing everything possible to try to save anybody who is willing. You know, recently... We've begun to let my daughters walk through Templeton with us. We've taken them on a lot of walks in the evenings, but they've begun to like to walk themselves. And so we'll tell them, okay, you can walk on the sidewalk. But I'll tell you, if, if they begin to walk on the street, we are restrictive and mean parents. We tell them, no, you've got to get on the sidewalk. You have to walk on the sidewalk. And then we'll continue walking down the sidewalk. And sometimes they'll be really upset that we make them walk on the sidewalk instead of in the street because the street's wide open and it looks like a great place to walk. And then we get to the crosswalk. And, and we're such terrible parents that we actually make them reach up and grab our hands and walk across the street. So you can't, you can't walk across the street by yourself. And sometimes they get so upset by that that we actually have to physically pull them up and they'll be arching their back and flailing and saying, no, walk, 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 walk. I said, no, you don't understand. You just don't understand. I can't have you hit by a car. I love you too much. That's what the Bible is saying again and again. Look, I love you too much. Don't go there. I love you too much. It's going to hurt you. I love you too much. The God of the universe is wanting for you and I, first of all, to recognize that love that has been freely given to us so that we stop running from him. We stop hiding behind trees, behind all of our addictions, all the things in our life. And we just turn fully and embrace that non-condemning love in our lives. That's what repentance is all about. And second, he's wanting for this mind to be in us, which is also in Christ Jesus. He's wanting for us to treat the world around us in the exact same way. So as we close, I just want for you to take a moment. Maybe close your eyes. It'll help you. And I want you to think for a second. Think about the person in your life that you cannot stand, that's hurt you the most. Maybe it's a group of people right now. Maybe you're thinking about a particular even political party or you're thinking about people who are doing things that are just wrecking the world. I don't know who it is you're thinking about, but think about the things that you've said about those people or that person. Think about, think about your, your, your heart's intents towards that person, what you wish could happen to that person. Think about all those things for a second. That's troubling to me, I'll be honest. There's some people right now that I have a hard time with. None of you, don't worry. 
But the world's crazy, and there's crazy things happening, and it bothers me. But now think about this. On the cross, as Jesus hung there, he had that person, that group of people in mind. And he said, I will lay down my life for them if, if they will only, and even if they won't, I'm going to lay down my life for them. Whoever it is, the worst and most hateful person in your life, God laid down his life for them because it says that he is not willing that any should be lost, but that all should come to a knowledge of salvation. Ty Gibson points out this exercise. Actually, he just recently tweeted that. And then he went on to say this. If Calvary's love cannot arrest our meanness of spirit, our venomous tongues, then nothing can save us. And we will find ourselves ultimately trapped in a mental prison of ugliness in which we will find it impossible to believe in God's love for ourselves when we need it most. Friends, it's a desperate plea. Take no part in what the accuser of the brethren ever lives to do in accusing people. Take no part in tearing people down. Take no part in trying to watch out for number one. Instead, do like the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. The way up is down. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. The reality of who God is is, is mind-blowing. The reality of who you are, the one that we're talking to, that, that you saw us as rebels on this planet, that you saw Lucifer as, as a rebel, and you've done everything possible to stop us from rebelling. Oh Lord, would you take away the veil of deception? Would you take away the hardness in our hearts? Would you... Would you help us to see your face and your amazing love for us? Would you help us to stop hiding behind anything else? Lord, may the goodness of God lead us to repentance. May we turn from everything else. Lord, I want to believe that you only have my good in mind and that when you give instructions, it's because you don't want me to be hurt. And it's because you want to fulfill those things as promises in my life. Thank you for the amazing God of love you are. Thank you for being the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.